So we're in a series, and just so you know, um, I didn't like my sermon out there, so I'm shortening it and changing it, and so it's going to be good, I hope. Don't clap. Um, so this question right here, um, how does Jesus become king is how we're, is the question we're wrestling with this, this King Jesus series. And the reason it's important is because as we follow Jesus, we must understand the steps that Jesus takes. And, and so that we are committed as his followers to following alongside him. And so Jesus, several weeks ago, came into the city of Jerusalem, this triumphal entry, as people exalt him as king, as they hail Hosanna in the highest. And then he walks into the temple. He gets angry at a fig tree and then clears the temple. And then they start to question Jesus. And we see their motives time and time again are not pure and holy and righteous, but their motives of accusation and blame with the purpose of taking Jesus out. And the bottom line of the last two chapters is simply this. The temple is not what it is supposed to be. In fact, nothing is. Because the temple was supposed to be the place where God dwelled and where his people had communion with him and was a light to the nations that showed the goodness of God. And yet it failed to live up to its calling. It, it failed to truly be its divine purpose. And as I said, nothing was really the way that it was supposed to be. From the very beginning, as God in his goodness creates his good creation and invites his creation to live in shalom and peace with him. And yet they decide that there's got to be a better way. And so instead of following God's way to be in communion with him, they go their own separate way. And what we see really early is what we would say is a fall from grace. But if you know and understand the story, it's not really a fall from grace, it's a fall into grace. Because time and time again, God continues, despite the disobedience, despite the ignorance, continues to show grace and mercy to his people. In this pattern, a paradigm develops really early in the story that continues throughout the story of creation, fall, and redemption. Where God's good creation is distorted and people fall, but yet God steps in to redeem. And we see this play out time and time again because on the outside of the garden, looking in, is it seems like Cain and Abel are in this new reality of separation from God. God shows up and Cain kills Abel. And it seems like, again, this fall is going to win the day, but yet somehow God redeems the story. And story after story from Scripture follow this paradigm. And so Jesus has been in the temple, and he's been confronting the system, and they're walking away from the temple. Verse 1 of chapter 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. 
Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And if you know anything about the temple, the temple was a massive architectural marvel. Some of the stones at the foundation will measure 10 feet by 10 feet by 90 feet. Even today, we have very few pieces of equipment that can move that massive of a stone. And so you imagine as you are walking out, and Jesus says this temple that you see, these magnificent buildings that you put so much hope in, so much trust in, so much of your identity in, it's going to be destroyed. They're not going to be left. And you would imagine as the disciple, this was your world as a Jewish person. It was your identity. This was the place God dwelt, and this is where you came to have communion with God. And so a world without the temple actually meant the world would be ending. And I think there is a connection in their mind that the destruction of the temple would obviously mean the end of the world. And it might not be literally the end of the world, but I can assure you this, it was the end of their world. To say that there would be no temple. And so it's obvious that the disciples, they want to know when. If the temple is going to be destroyed, when is this going to happen? Isn't it amazing we have such a fascination with that question? For the disciples, when would the temple be destroyed? Today in our culture, when is Jesus coming back? We like to know when. We, we like to know when the hard times we find ourselves in is going to come to an end. Because I think knowing, even though we don't have control over the days and over the steps, gives us some semblance of control. Because if Jesus could step in and tell his disciples right now, it's the year 33 or 34 A.D., and the temple is going to be destroyed in 70 A.D., then there is this window that they know they have to live in, and they have some control leading up to that moment. Right? If, if you receive the diagnosis, and your doctor came in and I said, said I know it looks bleak, but you have exactly three and a half years to, to live. There would be fear, but there would also be some relief. And just simply knowing, because knowing gives us that semblance of control. And throughout the centuries, people have been fascinated with the question, of when is Jesus coming back? We got to watch the whole scene unfold on national TV in Waco, Texas. Branch Davidian Compound. We, we've got to see people like Harold Camping 
post billboards all over the place saying Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011. And you see people's fascination with trying to predict and trying to know. And so Jesus comes back to his disciples, and here's how he ends this section. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned tasks, and tells one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether it in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, say to everyone, watch. And so he talks about a doorkeeper which we don't really have a whole lot of in our culture. Maybe one or two of you have a doorman. If you do, I like filet mignon, medium rare. Take an invitation anytime. Our doorman is called ADT, at least in our house. Someone to watch over your house. But the whole purpose of the doorman was when you went away or when you were asleep, that someone would be watching, would be alert, would be paying attention so that a thief wouldn't come in and take what wasn't theirs, didn't belong to them. And so Jesus says to these disciples, I'm not telling you when because I don't know. I don't know when the temple is going to be destroyed. For. I don't know when... The return is going to happen when I'm going to gather the elect, he's going to talk about in just a minute. I don't know when those things are going to happen. What I do know is if you're going to follow me, I want you to be alert and be on guard. Keep watch. I want you, no matter how difficult things get, to keep following me. I, I want you to keep following when it doesn't make sense. I want you to keep following when it gets difficult. I want you to keep following when you don't understand. I want you to continue to follow me and be alert as to what's happening in this world. Jesus says the hour is unknown. And here's what's fascinating to me. Jesus does not spend a ton of time concerned with telling people how to get ready to leave this world. He spends most of his time telling his disciples how to be his disciples in this world. It's not constantly, hey, get ready because a day's coming, get ready because a day's coming. It's constantly, follow me, trust me, come on, be who God has called you to be. He is so consumed with the church being the church. And you think about the people that Jesus gets the most frustrated with in all of Scripture. 
It's not the people that say, we don't know God. The people he is most concerned with is the ones who claim to be the people of God, yet don't act like the people of God. Those are the people he is constantly frustrated with and calling back to their vocation to be the people of God. And that was the purpose of the temple, to represent God to this world, to be a light that brought healing into this world, that brought hope. And the fate of the temple is Jesus talks, and almost entirely chapter 13 is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple. At the end, he kind of changes gears a little bit, but the majority of it is talking about the temple being destroyed. And the fate of the temple is it will be destroyed at the hands of pagan rulers. But Jesus' fate will be the same. He will be destroyed at the hands of pagan rulers and temple misrule. Pagans who will abuse their power, partnering with the people of God who will abuse their power. Kill an innocent man. Who will call out everyone else's sin but overlook their own. And Jesus tells his disciples, what I am fixing to face, you will face. The road that I am fixing to walk to become king is the road that you will walk. You will be met with persecution and trials and pain, and some of you will find yourself on a cross. For some of you, the road will get very difficult. And like I said, the disciples want to know when. When is all this going to happen? He says this in verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth. As you hear these rumors, understand this is a world without Twitter. And news doesn't travel quite so quickly. And as Jesus talks about these beginnings of birth pains, he's not talking about the end of the world. He's talking to his disciples about the temple being destroyed about not one stone left on top of another. And so you might hear these rumors of war and see nations rising up against nations, but you might hear those rumors when they're no longer rumors, when it's history. You might hear a rumor of a war that's actually already over because news doesn't travel quite so fast. But what you do need to know about these times is these are the beginning of birth pains. So, I'm going to take just a few moments to educate you on everything I know about birth pains. 
Okay, moving on. Now, I, I know a little bit about it because I've seen my wife give birth four times. The first time, um, before Gracie was born, we took one of these classes they call Lamaze, where you go in and they teach you how to give birth and how to breathe. And you get to do the whole... Right? And so we're there at this class watching a video on what to do when your wife is in labor. And the person narrating the video is a man. I'll, I'll tell you why in a few moments. But the man in this particular video said, as your wife is laying there in bed, grab her hand, caress or stroke her hand and her arm, let her know that she's doing amazing. And so I did what they said in the video, and my wife is laying there in bed, and I reach over and I grab her arm, and I'm going to start rubbing her arm and telling her what a great job she is doing, when all of a sudden she goes, don't touch me, don't touch me. <laughs> Have y'all seen The Incredible Hulk? Where, where you know his anger picks up and his eyes turn green? This is that moment. What I've discovered is there was a reason guys, a guy made that video. Because it was a group of guys who had nothing better to do on a Friday night, and their wives were out of town and said, I have a great idea. Let's make a video of how you as a guy should support your wife when she's having birth, and let's sit back and watch. I think it was probably a group of doctors, actually who get first-hand experience. Now, I don't know much about birthdays. The one thing I do know about birthdays is they're temporary. They come to an end. They are the start of something beautiful. And you ask, well, what are the birth pains for? What is being birthed? And it's what Jesus has been talking about from the beginning. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of light is being birthed into the kingdom of darkness. And there will be pain that comes with it. It will not always be easy. And he draws from the prophet Isaiah as he says this, but in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And you think, well, that doesn't sound great. Sounds kind of scary. But then he goes on to say this. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, 
ends of the heavens. He gives these two mountain peak moments. The destruction of the temple and the gathering of the elect. And he doesn't tell them when this is going to happen. And he doesn't tell them when this is going to happen. All he says is now you are going to wait. And you're going to watch. And you're going to be on guard. Because you don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know when. Because right now things are hard, but they're fixing to get a lot more difficult for you as my disciples. And I've been telling you about this, and I've been preparing you for this, but you don't understand, and you aren't until Friday. Friday, this is going to start to make sense. Friday, you're going to start to see what I've been saying. But you're still not even going to fully understand until Sunday. Until three days later. Then it's going to start to make sense. And there's this three-day paradigm that we see throughout Scripture. You have Abraham offering his son Isaac, who takes this three-day journey into the wilderness thinking his son is as good as dead. But then on the third day, God has raised his son, has saved him. You have Jonah who ran from God and found himself in the belly of a fish for three days. And yet somehow God delivered him. You have Peter, who stood around the fire after saying, Jesus, I will never deny you. And he denied him the three times, and he must wait. It's going to be three days before it seems like reconciliation is a possibility. You have Saul, who's been persecuting the church, who's blinded for three days, can't see. But this paradigm is not simply just about three days. Because the Exodus is a three-day story. It took 40 years. What we know is for every Friday, there is a Sunday. But there's a problem. Sunday does not come after Friday. Sunday comes after Saturday. There is a day in between. And you wonder, what, what is it the disciples did on Saturday? My guess is they gathered and they told stories to remember Jesus. Do you remember when he showed up and we didn't think there was enough food, but he fed 5,000 people? Do you remember when we were out on the water and we were fearful, and yet Jesus came walking out on the water to us? Do you remember when Jesus healed the demon-possessed man? 
or healed the woman who was suffering from this affliction and bleeding? Or do you remember when Jesus said, get up, take your mat, and go home? Do you remember when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? Do you remember his teaching? Do you think they talked about their own fear, their own failures? Do you think anyone said, hey, can you believe Judas did that? Do you think any of them got word of what Peter did around that charcoal fire? Do you think word came back of Jesus' words from the cross? Father, why have you forsaken me? See, Friday was a day of trouble. Sunday was a day of triumph. Saturday was a day of silence. It was a day of waiting. It's as if Saturday you wake up alive, but your dream is dead. You have to go on, but you can't figure out how. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you wake up the day after the diagnosis, after the funeral, after the job is done, after you've lost a child. You wake up alive, but yet there is part of you and part of your identity that is gone. And you have the hope that Sunday is coming. But the problem is today is still Saturday. Today, you're still waiting. You're still waiting for God to show up in the pain. You're still waiting for God to show up in the heartache. Because Friday, it's a day of trouble. Sunday, it's a day of deliverance. Sermons have been preached. Books have been written about Friday. People have celebrated Sunday. No one talks about Saturday. Saturday was a day of nothing. But I think what Saturday teaches us is it is a day that we wait. Because if you think about it, Saturday adds nothing to the plot of the story. Jesus has died. Jesus is going to be raised. But yet his disciples are forced to live within a day where they don't know what tomorrow brings where they don't know what tomorrow looks like, where they question, was this even worth it? Did Jesus fail? Do we have hope? And they question as they wait in silence. They question, and what it shows is that the third day deliverance comes from God. We cannot force it. We cannot make it happen. We must wait. Friday is filled with crying out to God. Sunday is filled with shouts of praise. Saturday is filled with us seeking God's voice and praying that he will answer. See, the problem is we live in between. Friday, Sunday. We've experienced the pain and heartache of Friday. 
And we know Sunday is coming. But yet we wait. We wait on God to show up. We live in between. We're waiting on God. The eternal Son of God who defeated death. Not by proclaiming His invincibility over it. But by submitting to His power. And what I believe when Jesus talks about giving up his power, his godness, I believe that in death, Jesus surrendered his ability to raise himself from the dead. Completely relying on God to raise him from the dead. That he surrendered that power entering into death. And that's why the scripture says, throughout time and time again that it was God that raised Jesus from the dead. Because Jesus set aside his power as God entering into death only for God to be able to raise him back to life. And so in death, Christ fills death with himself so that in death all we find is Christ. That is good news. In death, Christ fills death with himself so that in death all we find is Christ. And what we see time and time again throughout the scripture is this fall and deliverance. We see creation, we see fall, we see deliverance. We see Saturday. Jesus completely trusting God. Trusting God for his deliverance. Trusting God for his mercy. Trusting God from his grace. And you say, well, okay, why, why is all this important? Why does this matter? I have come across so many people in my life who have walked away from their faith because of the realization that we simply live on Saturday. And let me tell you, Saturdays can sometimes be really long. That waiting for God to show up, which was never intended to be this passive waiting. It was always this active waiting. The psalmist, David says this in Psalm 5, In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you, and I wait expectantly. Listen, every single one of us live in Saturday. And every single one of us are going to have these moments where we are begging and pleading for God to show up. And what David says is every single morning, it begins with this, laying my request before you and waiting expectantly for you to answer. The question is, can you wait hope for God? Even when it does not look the way you thought. Like I said, I've seen so many people walk away from their faith because of Saturday. Because of Friday. Because of the pain. 
because of the silence, because of the waiting. Wait on Wait on He has not abandoned you. He has not forsaken you. He is simply not answering the way you thought he would. That does not mean he is not there. It does not mean he does not hear your cry for help. It does not mean he does not see your pain and your heartache. It does not mean he doesn't see your fear and uncertainty. Wait with great hope, expecting God to show up every single day. This morning, I just wanted to say to some of you who are waiting right now, will not leave you. He will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. He Father, thank you. Thank you for this time. Father, I thank you for being a God that waits. Waits with us. Father, we're not alone. Sometimes we feel that we are. As we go through the difficult days, not knowing when the temple was going to be destroyed, not know, knowing when you're going to gather the elect, but, but not knowing when the cancer ends, not knowing when the divorce will be final, not knowing if our child will make it. Father, we live with these heavy, hurting Times and our hearts are broken. Father, my prayer is in those moments we would feel your closeness and your embrace like never surround your people. Love us. Wait on you, Jesus. Together we pray in Jesus' name.